Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, March 14th, 2016. Yeah, I know you've noticed I've been busy. Yeah, busy fighting witch hunters. I'll explain here in a minute. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. Now, normally here we dish up the daily dose. Today we're going to do a little something different as I ease my way back into regular production of my program. As many of you know, I've been embroiled in in the latest kerfuffle on the Internet uh, regarding uh, Tully and Chavidjian and uh, Daniel Emery Price of uh, Christ Hold Fast. And uh, and one of the things that's happening is, is I'm being raked over the coals for refusing to toe the line uh, regarding the conclusions, um, well, put out on the Internet by a couple of witch-hunting bloggers. And I'll explain here in a minute. In fact, let's just go ahead and get right to it. I'd like to read to you, and I'll add a little commentary along the way, of an article I posted over at FightingForTheFaith.com, and the name of it is Damned for Not Damning. And so I think this will kind of uh, set the stage for uh, at least you understanding what it is that I'm doing and why it is that I'm doing it. Here's what I wrote. I said, in my career at Pirate Christian Radio, there have been a few instances where I've been raked over the Internet coals, and people have called for my head on a platter because I've refused to agree with a blogger or a radio talk show host in their call to damn this person or that person. Each time that has happened, it has exposed that the person that I was refusing to agree with was on a witch hunt and was not actually interested in the truth. They had made themselves judge, jury, and executioner, and any who would dare to disagree with their verdict found their personal reputations destroyed and their salvation questioned, no matter how dubious and one-sided the facts. Now, let me explain here. There is a big difference between good investigative journalism and witch hunting. And this is how you can always tell that you're dealing with a witch hunt. Let me explain. In any conflict that occurs in someone's personal life, okay, and this is where I'm going to make the distinction because we're not talking about a theological difference here. We're talking about talking about somebody's personal life. That's what we're talking about. And let's say that somebody got a divorce, all right? And those of you who have friends who've divorced or maybe you've been through a divorce yourself, you understand that there are always two sides when it comes to what happened, why the marriage failed, and things like that. And oftentimes, 
friends will end up, you know, literally, you know, dividing against each other, picking one side or the other. That's how these things generally go down. But in those types of personal conflicts, there are always two natural sides. But when we're dealing with a witch hunter, and this is where it gets very subtle, when you're dealing with a witch hunter, you're not dealing with an actual natural side in a personal conflict. No, what happens is the witch hunter represents a third side, and that side is their side. And witch hunters have a really interesting habit of telling the story about what somebody has done, not from one side or the other as far as the natural sides of a conflict. No, they are telling the story from their side. Uh huh. It's a third side. And all of the data that they put together, the way it is put together, is designed and kind of skewed in order to tell the story they want told, to uh, forward the agenda that they have to achieve the goals that they want. That's the idea. And then what happens, and here's always, always, and I mean this, always the sure sign you're dealing with a witch hunter. When somebody who has primary source data that contradicts the conclusions or the way the story has been told by the witch hunter, and they voice that opinion or they share that information and kind of let the cat out of the bag that, whoa, wait a second, this person isn't exactly telling the whole truth here. What happens is rather than the witch hunter saying, whoa, I'm sorry, I yeah, I misspoke, I didn't quite get that right, and cleaning up their act, no, always, and I mean this, 100% of the time when you're dealing with a witch hunter, the person who voiced the contradictory data is slaughtered. Their reputation is called into question, and the witch hunter goes after them with lies, half-truth, skewed data. We've got to we've got to discredit that guy. And the reason why is because they're not interested in the truth. They're interested in their agenda. And they've got to be right so that their agenda, their goal of their agenda can take place. And by the way, that's exactly what has happened in this in this situation. Um, and I'll explain a, a little bit. There's kind of two people, you know, that are in play here, uh, Dan Price and Tully and Chavidian. But in both cases, the witch hunters involved have gone after me personally. Yeah, with ad hominem attacks, half-truths, full-out lies, all because you, you no 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 you can't say that you are evil you you are oh you we're calling for you to yeah that's how that works that's how you always know you're dealing with a witch hunter they're not interested in the truth anybody who has facts that speak up contrary to the conclusions that they've given they will slaughter their character that's how you know you're dealing with a witch hunter but let me continue with my uh, my article so one particular example of you know a fighting you know, witch hunt years ago uh, was back in November of 2010. At that time, I had been conducting research on the emergent church movement. One of the visible leaders of that movement, Dan Kimball, had privately reached out to me and requested to me uh, to meet with me so that uh, I can interview him. The reason he reached out to me was because he was being misrepresented on several several notable discernment blogs, and he felt that I was somebody more interested in the truth than in being right. I agreed to meet with Dan. We had a very productive day. No questions were off the table, and we spent the day walking around Fairmount, Indiana. We ended up visiting the grave of James Dean, checking out the Indian motorcycle shop, 
while we discuss doctrine and theology. In the course of our time together, it became patently clear that what certain bloggers were saying about Kimball's theology was not even close, and I mean this, not even close to what he actually believed, taught, and confessed. So, unlike other leaders in the emergent movement, Dan was not actually denying the core doctrines of the faith. What I had learned was explosive. I made the decision to interview Dan on the air and knew when that program went out onto the internet airwaves that I was going to be made to suffer for daring to speak to Dan and allowing him in his own voice to contradict what these bloggers and radio talk show hosts had said about Dan's theology. Mm -hmm. And I was right, by the way. November 15th, 2010 began several weeks of hell, and I mean it, absolute hell. Sadly, the bloggers and radio talk show hosts who had misjudged and actually misspoken and put out information about Dan's theology that was factually false, they didn't repent for publishing the, the false information about him. Instead, they dug in and hunkered down and then launched a series of blog posts and radio shows dedicated to discrediting me. That's how you always know you're dealing with a witch hunter. When the truth starts to get out, they attack the person speaking the truth. So several of the readers of these discernment blogs, they, they also decided to take it upon themselves to go to war against me on social media. My Facebook blew up. My Twitter melted down. People were calling for my resignation. People were claiming I had betrayed Christ. Some were saying I, I had joined the emergent church. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, oh, it was just ridiculous. I was accused of siding with my new friend, Dan Kimball. In fact, one person even said that I was having a bromance with him, you know, and that I was betraying my brothers in Christ. And I was accused of being grossly inconsistent. I was being damned for not damning. You see, the, the blogger and the radio talk show host, they had come to the conclusion Dan was to be damned. And the reason he had to be damned is because he teaches this, that, and the other thing. And then when I said, well, wait a second, you're saying he needs to be damned, but he actually doesn't believe what you say he believes. Oh, that's it, Roseboro. We're going after you. How dare you contradict us? That's how that works out. How you always know you're dealing with a witch hunter. By the way, the experience was painful. It was exhausting, but well worth it. It was then that I learned the difference between discernment and witch hunts, between journalism and propaganda, and I also learned that primary source evidence trumps all other evidence. But most importantly, I learned that lies are the native language of the devil, and they can never, and I mean this, never be employed in service to Christ, the gospel, his kingdom, no matter how well-meaning the person is who employed them. So this past week, yet again, the internet has exploded, this time regarding Tully and Chavigian and Dan Price. Both men have been the subjects of recently launched discernment witch hunts, and that's what they are. Both of them are having their characters murdered, and I mean this, flat out murdered, by a bunch of half-truths, suppressed evidence, skewed narratives, and a completely one-sided telling of, of, of particular events. How do I know this? Simple because of primary source evidence. Now, I don't have all of the primary source evidence, but I have enough primary source evidence to know with certainty that what has happened is, is that somebody is telling these narratives in ways that are skewing facts and data 
in order to get forward their agenda. And the fact that I have had my personal character attacked for daring to speak out and say, wait a second, I have data that contradicts this, again, proves we're dealing with a witch hunt. So a- anyway, this has prompted me, you know, th- these, uh, these launchings of these witch hunts, this has prompted me to publicly stand up for these men against the witch hunters, even though they are known repentant and absolved sinners. And by the way, that's kind of the thing is I find fascinating about this. There, there, there was nothing in the current moment that either Tullian or uh, Dan were doing that showed some kind of ongoing impenitence. Both of them are repentant. Both of them are forgiven. In the case of Tullian, he is under the watchful care of his pastor and the elders at the church that he is now at in Orlando, um, and, uh, you know, he's not doing anything of his own recognizance in the, in the case of Dan, he also is under the care of his elders and his congregation. Now you may not, do, you may not agree with his congregation's decision to restore him and you have a right to do that, but it's not like there was something going on in the present that warranted these personal attacks far from it. So by me standing up, the reward for doing this has been people claiming that I've betrayed Christ insisting that I somehow, and this is this is a weird claim, I am supporting or aiding and abetting um, sexual abusers um, and not concerned about victims and things like that. Um, bloggers have taken it upon themselves to destroy my reputation. Once more, I'm being damned for not damning. The experience has been painful, exhausting. Well worth it, though. It's one thing to have a theological discussion about someone's theology, their view of sanctification, or debate whether or not someone can or should be restored to ministry after a serious moral failing, even a moral failing of a sexual sin. But it is something completely different to set out to murder the reputation of a fellow believer in Christ by launching a scorched earth campaign against their very person and then damn anyone who speaks out against the verdict of the arsonists. That's a witch hunt. That ain't that ain't something that serves the body of Christ. So be it known, I have not, nor will I ever, participate in a witch hunt, internet mob lynching, or a scorched earth campaign against someone's person. These do not serve the cause of the gospel. They do not build or protect the body of Christ. Instead, they only tear it apart. I'm far more interested in the truth than I am about being right. And if I ever say something that factually is not true about somebody on the air, I will be the first and have been the first to go to the air and offer a retraction and apologize for getting it wrong. But see, that's not what the witch hunters are interested in. They have they represent their own side. You disagree with them, you will be slaughtered like the person they are trying to slaughter. That's how that works. So here's what I'm calling for in all of this. I understand there are a lot of people who've been scandalized. Yep, I get it. Yeah, there's a lot of people who have very strong opinions now regarding Tully and regarding Dan Price. You're entitled to your opinions. And I do not begrudge you your opinions. That's not what this is at all. In fact, like I said, theological discussion and you know, kind of hammering these things out, these, these are important discussions to have. But what needs to stop, and I mean this immediately, 
is the damning of anybody who has an opinion that contradicts the one that you think you should have based upon the evidence put out by said bloggers. Because the bloggers are not representing any side in this except for their own. And they are not interested in the truth. And the fact that they are willing to employ lies and slander in order to forward their agenda against those who are who actually can speak out with some degree of actual evidence from primary sources and say that's not exactly true. Yeah, that shows that these people are in it for themselves. They've got their own thing that they're trying to accomplish and, and it has nothing to do with the truth. It has nothing to do with actually dealing with a church matter in a churchly way. So what am I recommending? I'm recommending a ceasefire. I'm recommending a ceasefire and people to step back and cool off and take a look at what it is that has happened. We have people, Christians who should be united and our brothers and are te- realistically not even divided doctrinally who are anathematizing and separating from each other. And the question is over what? By refusing to agree with the conclusions of a witch hunter? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this does not serve the body of Christ. This does not even serve the truth. This serves the agenda of the witch hunters. And so what's called for here is for people to step back and say, what exactly, again, am I fighting for here? And who am I fighting against? And understand this, is that without you know, access to you know, both sides of the story. And by the way, the witch hunters do not represent one side or the other. Without access to, you know, to primary source information uh, for one side or the other, because really this is a personal matter, which by the way, I want to say something about that, is that here at Fighting for the Faith, we critique the public statements, the doctrine, the theology, and the public teaching of all kinds of different people, you know, vision casting leaders, pastors, and and teachers, and self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, and stuff like that. But the one thing we don't engage in here is going after the personal lives of these people. And let me say this. I've shown a lot of restraint over my career here at Fighting for the Faith, almost 10 years now. And um, I, I can say this. In that, in that time, I have become the recipient of all kinds of information regarding the personal lives of particular vision-casting leaders, pastors, televangelists, and things like that. And you'll notice that that's never featured here at Fighting for the Faith. And there's a simple reason for that. And that is, is that, well, when it comes to somebody's personal life, yeah, it, you know, when I pass something like that along, what I'm actually doing is engaging in gossip. And so I have to actually wait for stuff. If something comes out regarding somebody's personal life and it's been covered by a, a, journal who, a journalist who actually knows how to address those types of things and they've had their legal teams look over it and it's a story that's in the media, we'll talk about that. But, you know, you know, but when it comes to somebody's personal life, yeah, that ain't going to happen here at Fighting for the Faith because I'm ill-equipped. Let me give you an example. Okay, years ago, there was, a, uh, there was somebody that I regularly critiqued in the liberal left wing of, um, of Christianity. And this, this person um, ended up going through a very ugly divorce. Yeah, it, it, absolutely sad and tragic. 
And um, and people contacted me privately to give me the details of how that divorce went down and what prompted it and stuff like that. And with the expectation that I would be interested in airing his dirty laundry and in a sense trying to represent his wife's side of the story. And I basically said, you know, I am not – I am just not professionally equipped to address that information. It's just – I'm sorry. And so what I what I recommended, I said, I don't know if there's a story here or not. I just don't know. And so what I did is I passed them off to a very well-known journalist who uh, who at the time was, I think, uh, writing for the, you know, was it the New York Times or the Washington Post? I forget which one she was writing for. And passed, you know, because, you know, I have connections with different journalists. And so I sent, you know, sent, you know, the, them to her. And she actually followed up on the story. She followed up on the story and, you know, and began to do the research. And she contacted me back and she said, you know, um, although I think there's a story here, the problem is it's very complicated. And there's a lot of nuance to, you know, when, once you start to kind of get the other side of the story, certain things that are being alleged by the one side don't actually, you know, don't actually pan out or can't actually be substantiated. And so as a result of that, I'm not going to act on the story. And I basically let her know. I said that that's a really good idea to not do so because, we, again, you, you don't want to engage in gossip. And, you know, when it comes to things like this, there are highly charged emotions that get involved. And so the idea here is, is that, you know, what somebody says in public, what they're teaching is that's fair game for um, uh, biblical analysis and critique and things like that. Well, when it comes to somebody's personal life, yeah, no, um, yeah, there, that has to be handled delicately and correctly. And I seriously doubt, and I mean this, and I seriously doubt that 99.9% of the bloggers out there are properly trained and equipped and have done their due diligence to make sure that if they're going to talk about somebody's private life, that it can be done in a way that everybody involved would say, yep, that's the truth, that's accurate. And so, yeah, it, it gets really complicated and murky when you start getting into someone's personal life. And so the idea here is this. The, 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 uh, the witch hunter who, who went on his campaign to destroy the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the personal life and just completely melt down the reputation of Dan Price has acted in a way that is outside of his skill set outside and you know has shown that he's he's not representing either party he's representing himself and his agenda and that's the reason why none of us should actually be engaged in this because everybody engaged in this right now are engaged on his terms on the terms of these bloggers and that's not how personal matters are dealt with in Christ's church it's one thing to critique someone's public teaching and theology, whole other thing to start, well, taking sides in, you know, conflicts in their personal life. And for that reason alone, I think it's prudent for Christians who should be united to cease fire, back up, cool off, and stop fighting this battle on the terms laid out by the witch hunters, by the bloggers. Now, let me make something perfectly clear. I am not saying that because somebody is forgiven by God that they should not experience any temporal consequences. And I want to make that patently clear. 
That's not what I'm saying at all. Instead, I want to kind of make this distinction, and that is, is that, yes, these men have been forgiven by God. They're, they're penitent and forgiven. And here's the thing. They have suffered temporal consequences. And you see, this is where it starts to get really sick, and that is, is that the witch hunters are literally making the claim that what these men have suffered as far as temporal consequences isn't enough according to their standard. So these witch hunters have taken upon themselves to make sure that these men suffer even more temporal consequences than what they've already experienced, namely the complete annihilation of their character. And But I have to ask the question, who is it that gets to decide what temporal consequences somebody faces for their particular sins. Is it me? Is it you? Is it an internet consensus? Since when did we get to decide uh, when enough is enough as far as temporal consequences are concerned? I'm not in a vocation that I that I even have the ability to decide at all which temporal consequences either of these men should face. But I can testify to this. Both these men have suffered severe temporal consequences for their sin. And I do not believe for a second that an internet blogger, you know, witch hunter, you know, coming, you know, long after the fact has the ability and the right to actually say, nope, you haven't suffered enough temporal consequences. I'm going to make sure you suffer more. And, and then anybody who speaks up against what I'm saying and demanding, I'm going to also run them over and ruin their reputation. Yeah, like I said, none of this is Christian. None of this serves the gospel. None of this serves the truth. None of this actually leads to real repentance and the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation. No, all of this is tearing the body of Christ apart. And that is the reason why I'm standing against it. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do for today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, the remainder of it. As I'm easing back in and disengaging from all of the drama created by those blog posts, um, today, what we're going to do is I'm going to play my sermon from yesterday. Um, uh, it's Broken or Crushed is the name of it, and it's on the uh, Gospel of uh, Luke chapter 20. I'll read the text here shortly. And then I also threw in my Sunday school lesson on the epistle text for yesterday from Philippians chapter 3. And uh, the idea that will fill out the hour. There will be no commercial uh, break for today. And uh, so without any further ado, let's get to it. Here is my sermon from yesterday, Broken or Crushed. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 20, verses 9 through 20. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, let it out to tenants, and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him, sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, and this one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my son, my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? 
He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. In the name of Jesus. In Exodus chapter 34, we read the account where Moses had asked to see the face of God. God declined, but came up with an alternative plan. And in that alternative plan, he chose to hide Moses in a cleft of a rock and put his hand over the cleft while his glory passed by. And then at the right time, he removed his hand so that Moses can see the backside of the glory of God. And in that account, we hear these words, that as the Lord passed by before him, it was proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, let me translate, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But all who, but who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Yahweh, God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. It is Yahweh who is the one who planted the vineyard in our parable, in our gospel text today. And I have never met a man like this. Not in this life. Let's return now to our gospel text and walk through this and consider what is going on in this text. Jesus began by telling the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, let it out to tenants, and went into another country for a long while. Every one of the people hearing Jesus that day knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. The typology was patently clear. The vineyard is Israel. They know it. The Scriptures in the Old Testament speak of Israel as the vineyard whom God Himself has planted. And so Jesus, telling this very thinly veiled parable, says, when the time came, he, God, sent a servant. Read into that, he sent a prophet to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the prophets beat him, sent him away empty-handed. Now, normally a story like this would end right here. I mean, if this was the 21st century, it would end right at this point. It's real simple. We now call the police. We get the courts involved, you know, Sorry, you're going to be evicted from the property. You are in default of your agreement, your tenant lease, if you would. And then it goes to court. They lose. They're evicted. End of story. Justice is served. But Yahweh is slow to anger. Merciful. Forgiving iniquity. And so he does the unthinkable.
sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Tenants beat him, sent him away empty-handed. Verse 11, and he sent another servant, another one. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Imagine how the story would have been different. What is this man who planted this vineyard seeking from these tenants? What is he seeking? Reconciliation. He's seeking their repentance. He's seeking to show them mercy because of the wrong that they had done. But these are wicked tenants. And we learn at the end of the parable, the people we're dealing with here, that Jesus is telling the parable against are the chief priests, the religious leaders of Israel. Why on earth would anybody who was a religious leader in Israel claiming to worship the one true God, why on earth would such a person be so wicked as this? And the answer is simple. And it's one that we must come to grips with. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. The devil has sown tares and sent in his workers into the harvest field as well. They are not harvesting. They are destroying the crops. For them, it's all about them. And they're doing it all in the name of God. And their religion, their religion is the religion of self-righteousness. And the religion of self-righteousness will never tolerate the religion of grace. It will never, ever permit people to be forgiven. We read stanza four of our sermon hymn. Why, what hath my Lord done? What makes this rage and spite? He made the lame to run. He gave the blind their sight. Sweet injuries... Yet they at these themselves displease and against him rise. There's Jesus in Israel. God in human flesh. The God Israel claims to worship. And you know what he's doing? He's cleansing the lepers. He's forgiving the prostitutes. He's absolving the tax collectors. He's giving sight to the blind. And for this, he must die. This cannot be permitted to go on. Religion of works will not tolerate grace. So this merciful, kind, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, God sent yet another, sent a third servant, This one they wounded, and they cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, shall I do? Notice, destroying them is not even on his mind at this point. Yet each and every one of us knows that what they all deserve is for them to be slaughtered mercilessly. This is what they've earned for themselves. And this vineyard owner, who is this guy? Who thinks like this? Most of us, myself included, you dare cross me, don't worry, I'm going to let you have it. Right? This guy is snubbed over and over and over again. Rebuffed. 
And the only thing he can think about is continuing to show them mercy. So he sent yet a third. The owner of the vineyard then said, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Are you out of your mind? Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, ha ha, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. As if the kingdom of God can be possessed by human beings in such a way. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then Jesus asked the question. And watch the response. Quite interesting. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. The listeners should have said, that's darn tootin' right, that's what should happen. But watch their response. When they heard this, they said, surely not. No way. Why is it? Because they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. The typology was thin. They got it. Jesus wasn't talking about a vineyard. He was talking about Israel. And the talk of giving Israel to others is unthinkable. Surely not. But he looked directly at them and he said, what then is this that is written? And then quoting Psalm 118, Jesus says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. An interesting statement. Now, I'm going to go outside of the Bible here for a minute. You can take this or leave this. There is an old rabbinic parable, and that's all it is. It's a rabbinic parable. We're not sure if there's any history behind it, and actually tracking down the origin of this thing is really tough. All right? Here's how the rabbinic parable goes. It's a story told by the rabbis, and it actually has different variations of it, which is kind of fascinating. But the way the story generally goes is that when Solomon's temple was being built, the idea was this, because it is a holy spot, no hammer blows can be heard in the temple mount. So, the stones had to be quarried 20 miles away and then drug to Jerusalem. Imagine what a difficult task this would be before the days of pickup trucks and things like that, right? So, the first stone to show up was this large, cumbersome stone And the builders didn't know what to do with it. They had no clue what to do with this stone. And then the other stones began arriving, and they knew exactly what to do with them. And so the the stone that came first, they thought it was some kind of a reject. This is where it gets a little fuzzy and dark, because again, this is a rabbinic parable. Not sure if this is even history or not. But it's very old. Some say that they put it off to the side and the grass grew over it. And other accounts say they actually threw it into the dump, the city dump in Jerusalem, Gehenna. And there it just disappeared, right? And so as they got to the end of completing the Temple of Solomon, the builders send word to the stonemasons 20 miles away. We're now ready for the cornerstone. That was the first stone we sent. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Maybe there's some truth behind it. It's an interesting story. Not sure. But just think about it. For sure, though, the Lord is quoting from Psalm 118 here. And then, we all know this, Jesus is that stone. 
He is the stone that has become the cornerstone. This is all about Jesus. And he says this, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, which, by the way, is a good thing to happen. The worst thing that can happen to you is is that stone fall on you and crush you. The one who falls on that stone and is broken to pieces is the one who has penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. The one on whom that stone falls and crushes is the one who persists in sin and unbelief and self-righteousness and insists on saving themselves by their own works and will have nothing to do with this mercy stuff that Jesus is about. In that case... The stone the builders rejected that has become the cornerstone will fall on you and utterly destroy you. And then we learn this. Here's kind of the subtext to all of this in our text. The scribes and the chief priests, after hearing this, I wish it said this. I wish it said this. The scribes and the chief priests, after hearing this, said, you are so right. How can we have been so wicked? How can we, in the name of God, have been so evil? We repent. Forgive us, Lord. I wish it said that. But see, the religion of works, blind in its rage and its hatred of grace, says this. The chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. How dare you cross us, Jesus? We're the chief priests. Yeah, that makes about as much sense as, I don't know, Taco Thursday on Monday. Right? Because the God they claim to worship is standing right in front of them. Sought to lay hands on him. They perceived that he had told the parable against them, and he's, it's true, but. Here's, again, here's the kind of the interesting thing. The religion of works always works through power and coercion. And they have to have the adulation and popularity of the people in order to survive. So, they couldn't lay hands on Jesus because, whoa, holes would go down. Their popularity ratings would fall. Their approval numbers would plummet. So they said, we better not kill him now because they feared the people. So they watched. They watched Jesus and they sent spies. They sent spies who pretended to be sincere so that they might catch Jesus in something that he said. When on earth did Jesus ever do anything conspiratorial? When was he never out in the open? preaching and teaching in the synagogues and out in the fields. Everything he said is wide open. Nothing he says is subversive. Nothing he says contradicts Scripture. But they're, we're going to send spies. And you know what the spies are going to do? They're going to behave like they're listening to Jesus. Amen, Jesus. Way to go, Jesus. Yes, oh, Jesus, you're the best. Oh, we got got him on that one. He, He actually touched a leper. And keep in mind, all of this behavior is going on in what? In the name of God. In the name of religion. At the behest of the chief priests. What kind of religion is this? What kind of religion is this? 
answer? This is the religion that we all understand quite well. It's our default religion. We understand the law, but the gospel is something that has to be preached to us. So think of it this way. The stone the builders has, have rejected has become the cornerstone. So they pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him. Why? In order to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. And you can read in the subsect there, in order to kill him. And so the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is Christ. And then if you were to think of it this way, the cross then becomes the pinnacle center point of all of human history. And you are either on one side of the cross or you are on the other. When Jesus was crucified, he was crucified between two thieves. One hurled insults at him. If you're the Christ, save yourself. The other said, what has he done? What has he done? We're getting what we deserve. And cries out to the Lord, Lord, have mercy. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so, this stone will either fall on you and break you. Or, I'm sorry, you will either fall on it and be broken to pieces, or it's going to fall on you and crush you. And so the cross, then, the murderous ones, they want Jesus dead. And so he dies. And we're all culpable in that, by the way. Every one of us. But to those who believe in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, the merciful God who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and forgiving and parting in iniquity, mine and yours, that death becomes our salvation. But for those who persist in saving themselves and despising the mercy and grace of God, Christ's cross and His blood is on their hands and they will be found guilty of murder. That's what it all comes down to. Are you penitent and forgiven? Or are you self-righteous and seeking to murder Christ and silence His grace? Something to think about. In the name of Jesus, amen. And now here is my Sunday school lesson from yesterday on yesterday's epistle text from Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 2. Let us pray. Lord, keep us steadfast in your word. Curb those who by the seed or sword would wrest the kingdom from your son and bring to naught all that he has done. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, building off of today's sermon, you'll notice that the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel were the ones who murderously conspired to kill Jesus. For what? If you remember the sermon, you know, I alluded to the fact that, well, self-righteous religion is at war with the gospel of grace and Christ's mercy. 
Now, I want to read by way of foundation work today. I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story, and I'll show you something. And that is, is that in World War II, in the, in the immediate aftermath of World War II, there was a pastor by the name of Henry Gerke. Henry Gerke. Henry Gerke was an LCMS pastor, military chaplain, and he was assigned to be the pastor for all the Nazi war criminals who were on trial at Nuremberg. Uh-huh. All right. So he's assigned to be their pastor. And I want you to think about the gravity of the situation. The men who were on trial include Goering, Zollertrop, Heidel. I mean, some of the worst war criminals in all of human history. These men, literally, the ones who are on trial and found guilty, they are responsible for engineering and executing on the final solution, which is the extermination of the Jews in the concentration camps. We're talking about men who have blood on their hands to the tune of six million Jews. That doesn't include others, gypsies, Jehovah's Witnesses, homosexuals, I mean, in, mentally ill, you name it, right? These men are as evil as evil gets. And when he first gets there, he goes and meets with all of his parishioners, none of whom, to begin with, are penitent believers in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Not, a, not one of them. And you know what he does? He preaches law, gospel, sin, grace, repentance, forgiveness of sins. He refuses to even give any of them communion unless they are penitent and absolved for their sins. Think about this. Now I'm going to make a case. I'm going to make a claim here. If the gospel you believe in, if God's mercy isn't great enough that you can... You can come to the communion rail with a forgiven Nazi war criminal. Your gospel is not the biblical gospel. Now, in one particular account, Ribbentrop is one of the men who, through the preaching of the word of law and gospel, comes to penitent faith in Christ. Now, I want you to consider this, this account. In uh, William Shire's book, The Rise and the Fall of the Third Reich, he ends the book off of the Nazi Nuremberg trials, but doesn't really get into the details about this particular thing. This is kind of woven together from several uh, pieces. So let me read to you uh, from this account. Ribbentrop, who William Shire, the, uh, the author of the book, completely despised, Ribbentrop is reported to have flippantly blurted out to the American military pastor, see you later, as though he was making a colossal terminal joke. This is upon his execution. Okay, So Ribbentrop has been found guilty. He's going to the gallows. And one guy reports you know, that supposedly Ribbentrop kind of flippantly says, see you later. You know, something like that, right? That's not what happened. All right? And I want you to consider this. Gierke, in several books, this is actually noted and recorded for us. Before Ribbentrop goes to the gallows, 30 minutes before He's with him in his cell, both of them on their knees. Both of them, side by side. He praying 
He confessing. He being absolved of his sins. He receiving the Lord's Supper. When it's time for the execution, Ribbentrop ascends the gallows 13 steps. Gerke is right with him, side by side. Before they put the black bag on Ribbentrop's head and put the noose around his neck, here's what the actual quote is. Ribbentrop says this, I place all my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. And then he turns to the pastor whom he loves. Pause here for a second. After Gerke gets there, he's doing his ministry work. He'd been there for a while while the trials were going on. And a rumor circulated that he was going to be reassigned. And that, and that, and the thought of him not being there with these Nazi war criminals just devastated them. Each and every one of them wrote a personal handwritten letter and had him sent to Gerke's wife in the United States, begging her to please let him stay. She wrote him back and said, you have to. These men need you. So he stays. And so he goes up the gallows, Ribbentrop. Ribbentrop confesses, I place all my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. And then he turned to Pastor Gerke and he said, I'll see you later. It wasn't flippant at all. I'll see you later. I'm sorry I'm torn up about it. Yeah. That's confidence. That's confidence that he's forgiven. That's confidence that he's forgiven. I will see you again. In the book War and Grace, Don Stephen recounts the story of Henry Garricky, a Lutheran pastor in the, in, the, in the military from Missouri who was assigned to be the chaplain to the Nazi war criminals. In the process of his encounters with Goering, Rosenberg, Ribbentrop, he noted that not a few felt genuine remorse for their actions and they found faith in Christ, including Ketel, Ritchie, von Schirach, Speyer, Rader, and after much struggle, Ribbentrop. And listen to this. I want you to hear this. Think about today's Gospel text. Many Americans sent Gerke hate mail, detesting the fact that he would minister to Nazi war criminals. How dare you minister to these scum? But I want you to note here, note the faith of Ribbentrop Note the confidence that he's forgiven. Note his confession of faith. Note his remorse and confession of his sins. Because here's, here's kind of the kind of, look at it, two sides of the same coin. Okay, same coin. Let's look at side one. If Christ can't forgive Ribbentrop, can he forgive me? Okay, same coin, other side. Since Christ forgives Ribbentrop, he can forgive. Over and again, we get into the text now coming next week with the denial of Peter. Three times he denies. You'll notice that in the Passion narrative, and we'll see this next week, Judas 
and Peter both betray Christ. Both of them do. Right? Oh, Christ knew that was coming. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And I keep, I mean, the words of Jesus ring in my ears where Jesus says, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. Jesus is very clear on that. Peter doesn't deny him once. Not twice. Three times. And yet Christ forgives him, restores him. I look at that and I say, I look at that and I say, if Christ can't forgive Peter, he can't forgive me. But he's forgiven Peter, he does forgive me. Look at King David, right? Look at King David. And so here's the thing, is that you'll notice then that we're kind of setting up a little bit of a dichotomy. Think about the hate mail that Gerke gets. I bet you some of that hate mail was written from Christians. For sure. Okay? For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, no, I agree that you know that's how evil they were. I mean, and at this time, the stories of the concentration camps and their liberation is coming out, and everybody knows what the Nazis have done. It's splashed all across the newspapers, right? Can you imagine being a forgiven sinner and saying that man should never hear the gospel, lest he repent? be forgiven, and have eternal life. He deserves to burn in hell. I like what this author wrote, though. Let me read the rest of the thing. So many Americans sent Gerke hate mail, detesting the fact that he would minister to the Nazi war criminals. Yet, the additional story from Stevens only strengthens the impression that the Nazis are us. We might have done the exact same thing that they did in, under the same circumstances. The story of the Nazis is a sobering story that should make all of us weep and not arrogantly sta state that they are a breed of another kind. They aren't. They're the same breed we are. Right? So this kind of sets the stage. The reason I read it all the way through is because when we get to Philippians chapter 3, this dovetails perfectly with like the whole book of Galatians, where Paul will not yield even an inch to the Judaizers so that the gospel isn't lost. There's some very strong language that we're going to hear, but Paul understands something. That self-righteousness is the arch enemy of Christianity. There are two religions in the world. Only two. There's the religion of works, and it takes on a lot of forms, including forms that mimic Christianity. And then there's the religion of grace. And so, kind of provocatively, I've set the stage for you with this idea. Forgiven Nazis going to heaven. And think of it this way. Ribbentrop, after making his confession, after telling his dear pastor, who ascends the steps with him, is there to support his brother as he's going to die. Ribbentrop has the bag put on his head, has the rope put around his neck, and he steps out onto platform and then as the platform opens, he drops. But he drops into eternal life. Yeah, and see, the thing is, is that Ribbentrop is us. We are him. We are all forgiven sinners. So keep the grace in center and now come 
those who are self-righteous, who are mixing and putting into the gospel requirements of law-keeping in order to be saved. Watch what Paul does. Let's take a look at our text now. Philippians 3, starting at verse 2. Holy smokes. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now I'm going to pause there for a second. Could you imagine if Paul made this statement today on Facebook? You're calling your fellow Christians dogs and evildoers? Oh, hand in your preaching credentials, Paul. You are not fit for the office. That's what would happen. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And he says this, we, not they, we, not the Judaizers, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Look at this. We put no confidence in the flesh. None. And the confidence in the flesh that he is describing here is the confidence that says this. It isn't the confidence of Ribbentrop who says, I put all of my confidence in the Lamb of God who bled and died for my sins. It's the com- this kind of confidence, this confidence of self-righteousness is I am confident that I am a good person. I am confident that when I stand before God on, because I have done this, that, the other thing, or haven't done this, therefore God is going to say, well, welcome, I've been waiting to see you. Way to go. Get a standing O from Jesus. Jesus is no longer Savior. Jesus is exclusively, and, I, and you've got to understand, there's a right way of understanding this. Jesus to them becomes exclusively role model. Now, it's true, Christ is role model. But they believe they're saved by how they mimic Jesus, His righteousness. It's all confidence in themselves. Now, Paul then says something quite amazing. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, this is where it helps that Paul was a Pharisee. Before Paul became Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus, Pharisee, studied under Gamaliel. His Pharisaical credentials were impeccable. Best schools, best marks, zealous. This guy was the Pharisee's Pharisee. So I have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, well, I have more, and here's his credentials. Are you ready? I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. Were you? Huh? Of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless. He has reasons for confidence in the flesh, right? Paul's lived it. He's been there. He's done that. Here's what he says. But whatever gain I had counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. And I let go of all of it. I have Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things 
And I count them as rubbish. All the things he thought he had as gain, as a Pharisee, law-keeping to save himself, he says it's rubbish. It's a little stronger than garbage. Take a look at our Greek here. Here's the word right here. Scubula. Take a look at our lexicon and see how the lexicon translates this word. Scubalon. Useless or undesirable material that is subject to disposal. Think of it as refuse. Garbage. Excrement. Manure. Kitchen scraps. You get the idea here? Excrement. Okay, that's still very polite, yet very true, right? So all of his self-righteousness as a Pharisee, he considers that to be excrement. Wow. Not some of it. All of it. Whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as excrement in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him. So, all of that is excrement. I've got Christ. And I want to be found in Him. Watch these words. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Not having that. Uh Uh-uh. But that which comes through faith, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, this is a fun phrase in the Greek. Okay, let me explain. All right, so here we see it says the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, let me see if I can highlight the appropriate portion over here. This is it right here. The Greek for this is tain ek theo diakasune. I know that sounds like Greek to you, right? <laughs> That's right. All right. But let me show you something here. Tain, this is the word the. So this is your direct article, right? The. This is in the accusative. This Righteousness, diakosune, righteousness, is in the accusative. These two things go together. And Paul purposely split them apart. And by splitting them apart, he makes it so that anybody reading this in the Greek would immediately see the, the weird word order and see the emphasis that he's saying. So let me give you the kind of like literal word-for-word translation. Okay? So he says, be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. Actually, it reads, the from God righteousness. The from God righteousness. By saying it that way, there's no doubt whatsoever where this righteousness is coming from. It's, this is the from God righteousness. It ain't yours. It's the from God righteousness. Huh? Yeah. So this is Christ's righteousness given to you. And see, this is what Christ is all about. 
He's on the cross suffering for whose sins? That's right, ours, mine, yours, all of us. So somehow Christ has imputed to him. God takes our sin and says, nope, taking this off of you, I'm going to put this on my son. So you can say the from us unrighteousness is given to Christ. And it's bled for. It's died for. It's atoned for. And then we, when we're brought to penitent faith in Christ through the powerful working of the Gospel and His Word and the waters of baptism and the Holy Spirit, we are clothed in the from God righteousness, which is Christ's. Right? Perfect exchange. The sinless one for the sinner. The sinner receives the righteousness of the sinless one. And this is the from God righteousness. So let me read it again. For His sake, for Christ, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count all of them, all of my good works as a Pharisee, to be excrement, so that I might gain Christ, be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith, the from God righteousness that depends on faith. It doesn't get any clearer than that, does it? I want you to think about the scandal of this. Ribbentrop, I'm not sure how many good works he got to do before he died. <laughs> Unless somehow God considers him willingly taking his punishment as he should as a good work. I don't think he had the opportunity to show much progress in his sanctification. I can name another person who doesn't have time to show progress in his sanctification. The thief on the cross. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, well, you might be with me today in paradise, but we need to see some progress in that sanctification of yours. <laughs> You've got a couple hours. Go. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. And see, it's, it's, it's deaths like this. It's like the death of the thief on the cross that shows so clearly there's no way that sanctification is what is the grounds of our justification. There's no way. It's our justification that results in our sanctification. So many Christians, they want to argue, well, you're not making enough progress, you probably aren't saved. You call yourself a Christian, you should be farther along than that. Mark, you got a question. It looks like it's burning. <laughs> yeah, ribbon trap. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that is a great point. Oh, man. This pump. <laughs> oh, man. You get like five points on your star chart, dude. Absolutely. Oh, man. Great point. And, and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It is just like the parable of the different workers who come throughout the day. What a crazy 
what a crazy story, right? Who hires guys out at like five in the evening and they only get to work for an hour and they get the same pay as everybody else? And the, and the guys who came early, they were, they were furious. They expected more, right? And, he, and the, I'm doing this from memory. The, the, the guy who owns the, you know, the field basically says, you're upset because of my generosity. See, that's the thing. I get, uh, that's human nature. Yeah, yeah. It's fallen sinful nature. Yeah. That's fallen sinful nature. See, that's the scandal. This is the scandal of Christianity. It's so scandalous it can save King David. It's so scandalous it saves the murderer of Paul. It's so scandalous that a man who's dying for his thievery is absolved and goes to heaven immediately upon his death just hours later after they break his leg. It's so scandalous that even Ribbentrop is forgiven and has confidence in Christ and can look his pastor in the eye and says, I'll see you later. Right? See you again. And the thing is, is that we, this confidence is the same confidence that we all need to have. But in order to have this, you must understand there's nothing you have to offer God in exchange for your salvation. Nothing. You've got nothing. You're, you're poor. You're destitute. You're bankrupt. You are, you are naked and bruised, dead. you got nothing. And the thing is, is that God doesn't want you to pay for Him making you alive. He makes you alive because He loves you and He does it by His grace. Right? And it's scandalous. You start talking like this. You talk about somebody who's committed a sexual sin being absolved. You'll be accused of glossing over sexual sin. Making light of it. Think about it. Oh, the slander and the slurs come pretty quick when you start talking about real sinners who committed real sins really being forgiven. You're going to get in a lot of trouble. Oh, we're not given a second chance. You messed that up too. <laughs> I'm so glad that God is not the God of second chances. Okay, I used to play golf. I don't have time or patience for it anymore. Golf is a commitment. It's like having another wife. Okay, and I'm already married. I'm not talking to you right now about that. <laughs> you stay out of my garage. <laughs> okay. But there's, there's a gentleman's rule that's not officially in the rule book when it comes to golf. And the gentleman's rule is that if you're playing with friends... And, you know, your friend gets up to the tee and he takes a hack at it and the ball dribbles, you know, into the woods, you know, five feet in front of him. If you've ever played golf, you know what I'm talking about, right? You'd think the game would be easier. It's not like somebody's pitching the golf ball to you. It's sitting on a tee. It's not moving at all. <laughs> yeah, it's tee ball, right? Exactly. Okay, well, so you know where I'm going with this. So you dribble it off into the woods and somebody says, ah, we'll give you a mulligan. Okay, and what's a mulligan? It's a do-over. It's a second chance. But the expectation is, is that this time, rather than looking like a hack, 
You're going to hit a beautiful shot. It'll have a nice little tight draw. It'll fly out 200 yards, hit the fairway, and then roll for another 50 yards right dead center. You have a wedge shot into the green, and then a simple three-foot putt for birdie, right? This is what's expected, right? But you know what happens often with mulligans? <laughs> it goes into the same spot. Okay. Okay. And if God is the God of mulligans, if God's the God of second chances, keep in mind, it's up to you to get it right the second time. Second chance is one last chance. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So let me give you an example, a metaphor, if you would, what the gospel is like using golf. Okay. Back in the day, Tiger Woods was like the king of the hill when it came to him, and then he had a big falling out. Who's like the big golfer now? I don't even know. I don't follow it. Does anyone know like any of the major golfers? All right, we'll go back in history. We'll go back in history. You all heard of Ben Hogan? How about Arnold Palmer? Okay, you've heard of Okay, good. It's an older crowd. Arnold Palmer it is, and I'm not talking about the drink. Okay. All right, so here's the idea, okay? is that one of the most difficult golf courses in all the world is in New York. It's called Bethpage Black, okay? It's called Bethpage Black. If you are a scratch golfer, which means that you average par for a whole course, you don't have a handicap at all. Um, If you're a scratch golfer, the average score for a scratch golfer on Bethpage Black on a good day is 83, okay? Dead serious. It's still like 12, 13 above par, okay? So... Here's the idea, okay? It's a sudden death match. You must score par or better at Beth Page Black in order to go to heaven. Oh, and by the way, we got gale force winds. Okay, it's raining sideways because of it, and there's lightning, okay? And you, if, you, if you don't score par or better, to hell with you. No mulligans. Okay, right. What do you think Arnold Palmer would score under those conditions? No, not even close. Not even close. He's good, but he ain't that good. Yeah, double par under those conditions. All right, so here's, here's what the gospel is. It's not a second chance. Here's what the gospel is in this, in this illustration. The gospel is this. Christ steps up to the T. Puts his ball down. And he takes his swing. And despite the fact that it's gale force winds, because he's God, he's able to figure out how to maneuver it and it lands perfectly in the fairway. Wedge shot into the green. One putt. Birdie. Right? Jesus scores five under under these conditions, which is an amazing. Oh, five under in these conditions. It's tough. Okay? Right? 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 It's still a difficult course. Come on, it's Beth Page Black. <laughs> yeah. And he doesn't get to use eagles or squirrels to help him, right? <laughs> okay? So he fills out his card, five under. And here's what the gospel is Jesus comes to you and he says, Here's your card. Put your name on this. This is yours. That's the gospel not second chances, right? So I took a little excursus so that you understand it's not second chances. It's not. If you were given a second chance, you'd fail. Third chance, you'd fail. 
fourth, fifth, it doesn't matter. There's not enough chances in eternity that you'd get it right. Standard is sinlessness, and you're already born dead in trespasses and sins. So let's come back and let's review. Whatever gain I had as a Pharisee under the law, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as excrement in order that I might gain Christ. I don't want any of that other stuff. I want Christ and be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The from God righteousness that depends on faith so that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection. Catch this phrase. And may share in His sufferings. Becoming like Him in His death. Just like our parable today, the steadfast, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, God, who rather than send troops and exact justice, continues in love and hopes of repentance. Right? And the servants are beaten, shamefully treated sent away empty-handed, and the Son of God thrown outside the city and killed. The religion of works will not tolerate you to speak this way. The religion of works will not tolerate you talking about Christ being sufficient for sinners. No, it will not. You start talking this way, you will be made to suffer. This is why the Gospel is called a stumbling block. Stumbling block and foolishness. Stumbling block for Jews, foolishness to Greeks. Scandalous. Absolutely scandalous. Think about what Jesus did. He touched lepers. Gave sight to the blind. And the Pharisees taught that the reason why they were blind is because they sinned. Right? You were steeped in sin from your... From birth, how dare you lecture us, they said to the man who had been given his eyesight by Christ. Right? And then you think of that woman who crashes the party at Simon the Pharisee's house. You know, that woman. Her. The whore. She crashes the party. And what does she do? She washes his feet with her, with her tears. Dries them with her hair. And what does the Pharisee say? If he, if he knew who was touching her, he wouldn't be permitting this. But he knew exactly who she was. Right? Forgiven. Yeah. Woman with the seven demons, right? And the tax collector, Matthew. Levi, the tax collector. You know, the tax the people who betrayed their own countrymen and worked for the occupying force of Rome and kept everybody in poverty and skimmed the money off the top and made themselves wealthy while everyone else was poverty-stricken? You're going to forgive that guy? Remember the story of the prodigal last week? That was chapter 3 in the one parable. How does that, how does that begin? They were upset that he's eating with sinners. Right? This is scandalous stuff. You start talking like this, saying, oh yeah, 
Salvation, totally gift from God. God pardons sinners, not partway. Completely. Totally by grace, not by works. Oh, you are going to suffer. Paul suffered. Remember when he was arrested in the book of Acts? This is the man who speaks about against God's law. Get him. This is the one he's turning the world upside down. Right? How many of Jesus' disciples died of old age in their beds? One. One. John. Oh, and it's not that they didn't try to kill him. We know from church history that at one point they tried to boil him in oil to kill him. He survived the ordeal. John. And if you survive the ordeal, well, then you're off. I mean, they try their best. <laughs> you know, which is why I think later, in, especially you'll hear this in, if, you, if you ever watch any period films from like the uh, 1800s, you know, when the, the hanging, you, know, you, you will hang until you're dead, right? <laughs> so, so they, 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 they put the little proviso in there. So if the rope breaks, we're going to tie you back up and throw you back on it and wait until you're dead. You know, <laughs> yeah, there's like you don't get off if the rope breaks. So let's go back to this. So Paul talking about this, he says, let's come back. He says, so that I might know Christ and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings. So brothers and sisters, when you preach this gospel and you tell people of the forgiveness of sins and people come at you and make you suffer for it, know that you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Because in reality, the person they're really persecuting isn't you, it's him person they're mad at is him. You're just the messenger. The person they despise and hate is him. And so we get to participate in his sufferings that way. This is the reason why, okay, think about this for a second. This theology is informed by something that Paul went through. Remember Paul's on his way to Damascus to round the Christians up? Is blinded by Jesus, knocked down. What does Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you what? Persecuting me. Why are you persecuting me? So when we suffer because of our confession and our belief in God's grace, they're persecuting Christ and we're sharing in His suffering. Becoming like Christ in his death, that by all means possible I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, but he has now in a way, right? Or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus, watch these words, watch this phrase. Christ Jesus has made me his own. Notice the direction that runs. This is an interesting thing. In much of evangelicalism today, they run this phrase backwards. I have made Jesus Lord and Savior. This text says, Christ has made me His own. Who's doing the making? Jesus is, right? We don't make Jesus nothing. He makes us His own. So brothers, not, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind 
straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. If anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. One of the most important passages regarding the gospel itself. Now you've been kind of walked through it slowly. Most important phrase, the from God righteousness. Not of ourselves, a gift. Not by works, so that no one may boast. Let me look at Ribbentrop's confession again. This is, practical. this is like, I can make this my own. I place my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. It's all right there. That is the gospel. It's so scandalous. And save, not just Ribbentrop, and save you. Save me. And indeed it does. Mm-hmm.